to Isaiah chapter 6. There's like a little echo here. Can y'all hear it? Um, Isaiah chapter 6. We, uh, you're thinking, okay, what's going on? We're supposed to either be in community mission care or back to judges. There's a little bit of, uh, it's, I'm losing my mind here. There we go. Perfect. Um, so, uh, but I wanted to do one more sermon on the mission before we went to judges. So Joe and I were talking this past week, uh, and as we were discussing community mission care, we thought that there needed to be one more big picture sermon that kind of underlined community mission care and really kind of covered all three of those ideas, and that would be uh, a sermon on the glory of God. And so today, uh, the sermon is um, hopefully going to point us all towards the glory of God and get us motivated to want to live for the glory of God. So <clears throat> my goal is that we'll think about doing community mission care and everything that we do in our life primarily for the glory of God, that we don't want to just be nice for the sake of being nice. We don't want to be helpful to people in our city just for the sake of being helpful. Uh, we don't want to do things for the glory of ourself, that primarily everything we do at this church, primarily everything we do in our lives is uh, laser-like focused on bringing glory to God. And so the goal today then is to talk about and look at the glory of God and let that be a, uh, a springboard into wanting to live our lives for that, for that reason. Uh, so uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. We're going to be in Isaiah 6, but I want to I read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, So... Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's where we're going. So let's pray together and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We pray that this morning, that as we think on something so lofty and try to talk about and understand and wrap our minds around something so grand, namely your glory, that... I, will, I know that I'll be grasping at the farthest reaches of my own language and human language that we have available to even come close to describe your holiness, your goodness, your glory, but that you would assist me by the power of your spirit to find the language to do that and that all of our hearts and minds, even though language is limited and finite, um, that you would, by your spirit, push past that so that our hearts and minds can uh, comprehend just how glorious you are and that uh, we would want to bring you glory with everything that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I read, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says this, So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Why would Paul... Pick something so as mundane as eating and drinking. You're going to do it, and I'm going to do it all the time, every day. And the reason why is because he wants us to understand. We would all agree that God really wants us to bring him glory in the big picture things of our life. And so he uses something so, so mundane and so daily, like eating and drinking, to help you see that not only does he want you to make sure that you're laser-like focused on the glory of God and the big things in your life, but even eating and drinking, things that you do 
every single day that you're supposed to bring glory to God when you do it. When you drink your coffee, not your milkshake because you didn't put milk and sugar in it, but your coffee because you drink it black because that's coffee. I'm just kidding. You do it to the glory of God. You thank the Lord that he created coffee beans and you thank the Lord that someone knew to take those pink things off the tree and let them get roasted and turn into brown and ground them and then run water through it and then you taste the coffee and you think all those things in your head and you say, God, you're so amazing. You think of everything. Glory to you for creating and then whatever you're eating or drinking or whatever you're doing, anything, whenever, whether it's mundane or not, we want to do all things to the glory of God. We do everything ultimately for his glory. So as we've been talking about community mission care, this means every time you get together to eat with someone in community, it should primarily be done for the glory of God. Yes, it's good for you to get to know people in the church. Yes, it's good for you to be nice and make food and hang out and talk about whatever you want to talk about. That's great. And you should do that. But those are secondary reasons. Primarily, every time you get together and eat and drink in community, it's because you want to give glory to God when you do that in that hour, two hours. This means that every time you make a meal and you take it to someone in care, that it should be primarily not just to feed that family or help that family that day, but it should be primarily done to give God glory. It means that every time you meet someone's physical need with food or drink or anything else, on mission, you don't just meet physical needs and then tell them about Jesus primarily because you want to feel good or you want to make them feel good. Primarily, the reason why you do that is for the glory of God. Even secondarily would be their, their hopeful pending salvation. Primarily, everything we do, whether we eat or drink or we do community mission or care, that's my, my fudding parenthetical statement into 1 Corinthians 10.31. It's not, it's not authoritative. But whether we eat or drink or we do community mission or care, we do everything for the glory of God. Everything we do, that's the aim. And you might ask, what does that mean then to glorify God? That is a, a really big, nebulous topic. What does that mean? That's a good question. And I thought that maybe we could peep over the shoulders of John Piper this morning to try to give us some insights. Um, he talks about the glory of God quite often. You could go to desiringgod.org and type in the search engine, glorify God, and you would get hundreds of, of messages and, and articles and whatever. Um, but there's some things that I think that he says that are really helpful. And so this is what it means. John Piper says to glorify means to fill and think and act in ways that reflect his greatness that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all of his attributes and all satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. This means this. Every feeling you feel, every feeling you feel, every day throughout the day should be done for the glory of God. There are a multitude of feelings that you'll feel from uh, how you feel about your children, uh, how you feel about your spouse, how you feel about anything, how you feel about whatever. It doesn't matter. But every feeling you feel should be done to give God glory. And therefore, those feelings you feel that are sinful, you want to kill those because they don't bring glory to God. This means that every thought you think, every thought, 
We want to do it to the glory of God. As 2 Corinthians, I think it's uh, 10.5 says, we want to take every thought captive for the glory of Jesus. This means that every action you do in your life, every action, I mean, our lives every day are filled with hundreds and hundreds of actions. Every action we do, primarily every thought, feeling, and action we do, we want to do it to give God glory. Every single one of them. And when you do this, when you do that, when you make every feeling, every thought, every action um, intentionally done for the glory of God, you show to everyone around you that in your mind and in your heart, God is supreme, not me. God is great, not me. Nothing is more all-satisfying than Jesus. No one is more beautiful, and as he says, in his manifold perfections than Jesus. No one satisfies my soul more than God. You put that on display for all the world when you think of every thought, every feeling, every action as to bring glory to God. You say to the world without speaking that Jesus is more supreme than everything else in the world. Jesus is more satisfying than everything else in the world. And so we want every thought, every action, and every feeling to be done for the glory of God so that this world knows that he is all satisfying. You may have heard this, but uh, there's this thing called a Westminster Catechism. It's asked this question. What's the chief end of man? Like, what is the main reason man is alive? Why is he here? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's a pretty common thing. You probably have heard it before. Maybe not, but it's pretty common. Um, John Piper takes that and he turns it just a little bit, and he makes it a pretty amazing thought. Instead of the chief end of God, or the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, he says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Not and enjoy him forever, but by enjoying him forever. So we glorify, what he's saying is we glorify God more the more that we enjoy him. The more that we see him as all satisfying, the more that we see that no one is more beautiful to my soul than Christ, by enjoying him, then we bring glory to him, which is why he's famous for saying, if you listen to any sermon, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This means that then for us, it's our privilege, it's our honor to conform every action we do, every thought we do, every feeling we have and all of the history that we are allowed to live in to reflect God's value. We're, we are honored and privileged to be able to display this to the world. So this means that what you think specifically and how much you think specifically about community, mission, and care in regard to being a member of this church shows how much you want to bring glory to God through this church. I'm not saying community, mission, care, the end all, be all, like only ways to bring glory to God. I know that there's, that's just our three words at our church, right? But I think that those three words encapsulate the purpose of the church. The three purposes of the church are pretty, pretty obvious. Worship Jesus, train those, disciple those in your church to become stronger in the faith, reach people that aren't believers to become believers. That's, that's kind of the threefold mission of the church and a really fast synopsis. <clears throat> and we believe community and care at Remedy Church helps us do that. We worship God that we train and disciple our people, and that we reach people by doing community mission care. So what it means then, when we talk about the glory of God, how much you think about 
those things or how much you feel or have a lack of feeling about or how much you do or you don't do in regard to fulfilling the purposes of the church reflects for us how much we want to live out the glory of God through the context of our local church. If we don't think about very much, we don't feel any feelings towards and we don't do anything like community mission care or to say it even differently, worship God, disciple people and reach people, we show how much we care about the glory of God through the context of the local church. You might do different things in your own life that bring glory to God. Of course you do. Of course you do. But why is it that sometimes we don't do this? What, what causes us to not do these things, to not think, feel, and do all the days, every day, every moment, everything we can to reflect the glory of God and bring uh, God glory? What is it that causes us to do this? Uh, we have competing glories or lesser glories in our lives. There are other things that compete for that. There's an illustration by a guy named Soren Kierkegaard that helps us understand this. He said, we are like people who ride in our carriage at night. Now, he lived a while back, so he didn't have, you know, a DeLorean or something. They had house, horses and buggies. We know it has DeLoreans, right? But um, back to the future too much. All right, so here it is. He says, we're like the people who ride in our carriage at night into the country to see the glory of God. But above us in our carriage, on either side of the carriage are, are, uh, of our seats are burns gas lanterns. And as long as our head is surrounded by this artificial light, the sky overhead is empty of glory. Because those lights are so close, we don't see the skies. But if some gracious wind of the Spirit blows out our earthly lights, these gas lanterns, then our darkness, then darkness comes and then God's heavens then are exposed and filled with stars and we see the glory of God. And that's what's going on in our life. We have artificial gas lanterns surrounding our heads, competing lesser glories. And so we don't see the glory of God. We have competing glories. So this means we pray like crazy that God will come and blow away every single completing glory in our life so that we can see his holiness and awe and splendor to us, to all of us in creation. So that means we should pray, God, come and destroy right now the lesser glories in my life, the gas lanterns in my life. Blow them away so that when I look up, I don't have artificial lights hindering me from seeing the glory of God Blow these things away so that all I see is the glory of God. Now, that's a dangerous prayer. You pray that, really pray that. God, destroy the artificial lesser gods around me right now. Then he might just do that. He might just do that. And then all of those things that we are so sinfully tempted into following um, will become major struggles. And they already are. But I nevertheless say we should pray for it. Our lives are fraught with so many gas lanterns, so many lesser competing glories around us that we need to be absolutely ready to part from those without question. Right now, just in your heart right now, do this with me. Close your eyes. For those that want to pray this, 
ask the Lord right now to reveal those lesser glories to you. Holy Spirit, come now and reveal all to us right now, our hearts and minds, these lesser glories. The things that cause us to be tempted away to see the goodness of your glory in the skies. Pray right now that the Lord would show those things to you. That you would know them right now. Because we all have different things. And then beg the Lord God to blow those things away. So that you can truly behold his glory. God, come now and do that for my friends here and me. God, keep us from wanting to ever be satisfied with lesser glories. God, I I know that if those things were to be blown away and we just got a glimpse of your glory, we would be absolutely convinced that you are far more beautiful than any idol around us. So help us see that. Don't let us be satisfied with mud pies when we can have a holiday at the sea. In Jesus' name, amen. So we need to pray for this. We need to pray that the beauty of gas lanterns are revealed to our hearts that they are nothing compared to the majestic beauty of the skies of the glory of God. So beg the Lord to help us all see that. Whatever it is in your life that competes with the glory of God, it pales. (coughs) It pales in comparison to the beauty of Jesus and the glory of God. Don't ever convince yourself that, that the little lanterns around your head come close to the beauty of Jesus. So, this means that the beauty of a competing glory is nothing compared to the glory of God. Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. So there's, there's temporary, possibly sinful joys offered to us all around with these lights competing for our, 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 our affections. But in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There are pleasures being offered to us daily. They're not good. They might be <coughs> They might be God-given to us and good on some level, but they're not ultimately good for us. Psalm 1611 is one example among hundreds in the Bible where we can see that the presence of God and the glory of God and experiencing the greatest glory is where we can find our highest joy. And everything else is trivial. Everything else is a competing glory. Everything else will let us down eventually. And that we can only find our highest joy in His glory alone. So then how do we do it? How do we turn off the gas lanterns? How do we kill the competing glories? How do we do that? I think one way is this. As often as we possibly can, stare with the most intense, uh, transfixed minds that we can, all the intensity that we can muster, stare at the greater glory. Let our hearts and minds be taken away to the beauty of Christ to where we see it, 
we are so blown away by his glory. These temporary competing glories we see are absolutely nothing. So my goal, the rest of this sermon is this, is to take us all on a journey into the greatest glory. Lots of places we could go in the Bible. But my, jo- my goal, this, the rest of the sermon, is to move our minds and hearts on a journey into the greatest glory. That, and I pray that we transfix our eyes and our minds on Jesus Christ and we see his glory and all other temporary glories will melt away as we do this. And as we see fullness of joy being offered to us at the right hand of God the Father through Christ, as we're offered this, I pray that we long for it more and more and more and more. That's why we're going to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, we know this is Jesus from Matthew. I don't have time. I have to go fast. So we, we know that this is Jesus. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. And with two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So as we read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we see seven things about the glory of God that should move our minds and hearts to glory in him. The first thing that we see is that God is alive. In the year that King Uzziah died, God's still alive. He is still alive right now. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From creation beginning and then eternity beyond that to creation end or whatever that looks like to eternity beyond that, God has always existed. There will not ever be a time that he has not existed. God is alive. He's the living God when the universe began and he was in perfect community with the Trinity forever before that. He is the living God throughout all human history. And he will be here in 10 billion years. God is alive and he will always be alive. There is a 100% turnover rate of people on earth. Every single one of us are going to die. God never dies. He's always alive. And to even begin to wrap our mind around that should blow us away that he never had a beginning and he never has an ends an end and nothing depends on his existence he will always be god is alive and has always been alive so as we glimpse into the glory of god we see that he is so much different than us he's alive forever the next thing we see in the year that king Uzziah died i saw the lord sitting upon A throne. In the heavens, Jesus is sitting upon a throne. God is authoritative, is the second thing. 
There's never a vision of heaven when we look in the Bible of God doing menial tasks, like taking out the trash, making himself a sandwich. He's not ever doing that kind of stuff. He's sitting on a throne, which means he is authoritative. He sits on his throne and all peace is existing within him and he has total control. On the throne is where he has the right to rule the entire world. We don't give God authority in our lives. He already has it. He has it whether we like it or not. He's always seated on his throne, indicating to us that he has full authority over everything. So as we glimpse into the heavens, we see that he's alive. And we see that because he's seated on the throne and he's always seated on the throne, he doesn't need to get up and stretch his legs and go get a sandwich and then come back and rule. He's always ruling and reigning. There's not ever a time where he's not, which means it's foolish for us to think that we have any rights and call them into question to God. It's foolish for us to think that we have any authority over him. He has complete and total authority over us, and God does anything he pleases. And everything he does is good and perfect and holy. So whenever I say that about myself, I do anything I please. That's bad. That's really bad. Because, and you, because we will sin. We will do wrong things. But when we say this about God, he never does anything wrong. It's always good. It's always perfect. And it's always holy. And it's not because there's some list out there that he lives by to make sure. It's because who he is intrinsically, whatever he does, it is good because he does it. Because he's God. There's not a list out there greater than him that he follows or else it would be God. It's because who he is and whatever he does, it's always good. That's what makes him God. He's authoritative. That's that's the second thing. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. High and lifted up. So there's, there's no one equal to him. He's high and lifted up which means that God is all-powerful, omnipotent. He's all-powerful. On the throne, when he sits there, there's not competing thrones with him. He's high and lifted up. And so all of the earthly thrones of kings that will live here on earth, every single one of them are going to die. Every single one of them are going to rule and reign over a small region of the earth. Jesus is the only one where he sits on the throne and says, I rule the whole earth. And actually not just this planet, but every other planet in this solar system. And every other, everything in the entire universe, I rule and reign. It's all mine. No king on this earth will ever say that. He would be a fool. God is all powerful. And so when he sits on the throne, it signifies to us his superior power to exercise his authority to do anything he wants. No opposing authority can ever change anything he says. If he says something and somebody else says no, they don't don't get their way. They fold. He always gets his way. He's all powerful. So he's alive. He's authoritative. He's all powerful. And we see this. He died. I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And then it says, the train of his robe Filled the temple. The train of his road filled the temple. If you were to go to a wedding 
and you have a, a bride that comes up and the train of her uh, wedding dress kind of fills the platform, we're, stun- we're supposed to be stunned by the beauty of the bride and the extravagance to which she has gone to for this day to bring herself to her husband. That's good. That's what it's supposed to be. And in this setting, it says the train of his robe fills the entire temple with his glory. This means that if we're taking the same kind of idea that we're supposed to be stunned by the beauty of the bride and the extravagance that she goes to to be uh, presented to her husband that day, infinitely more, God is, his beauty is stunning. God's beauty is stunning. The train of his robe fills the temple with his glory. This means that it fills uh, everything in there, showing us his, uh, his splendor is completely incomparable to anything else. It cannot be compared to anything. His beauty is absolutely stunning. No one and no thing and no person and nothing ever is more beautiful than God. And so we want to turn out the lights so that we can see the glory of God. Those glories that compete with seeing the beauty of Jesus need to be destroyed so that you can transfix your eyes on true beauty. God, the train of his robe, fills the temple. And then it says in verse 3, 2, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. And notice what they do. Uh, With two of them they cover their face, and with two of them they cover their feet, and then with two they fly. But they are nevertheless covering their face and feet. Which means, as they cover their face and cover their feet, they realize that in the presence of God, he is to be absolutely revered. So they revere him. The sixth thing is that God is revered. Fifth thing, whatever it is. Number next, five. That he's absolutely revered. So if angels who are perfect in the presence of God know that they have to cover their face and cover their feet because they revere God so much, how much more we who are sinful should revere him? How much more? They um, see the grand picture of the power of God. And at this point, they know that they are completely unworthy to even look upon the presence of him. And therefore, since we are so sinful, we should revere God even more. We should be constantly blown away at how different he is than us. Not in a way that, that makes us defeated, Because here's the good news. If you're in Christ, you have been given the righteousness of Christ. This means that you have um, every right, as Hebrews says, to go into the throne room. You have confidence to go into the throne room before Jesus. And that, yes, we revere him. We don't walk there all like peacocking, like, here I am. I can walk in here now because of Jesus. We're, We're not cocky, right? Instead, we walk in there with boldness and confidence that we can come before the throne because we've confessed of all of our sin and all of our sins been forgiven and Christ's righteousness has been given us and we have the confidence because we are in Christ to come before the throne room of God 
and revere him and praise him and worship him and give him all the glory and honor and thanks that he deserves. God is revered here. They cover their face and their feet because they know that they're in the presence of the greatest glory ever. And so we should quake in his presence like the angels. The next thing is this. They say to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God is holy. Number six. He's revered. Number five. Number six. He's holy. To try to say with words something about the holiness of God with limited, finite language, English, because other languages might be better. I don't know. I don't speak anymore. <laughs> we find ourselves grasping. We, 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 we run out of words to try to give the honor that we should give to describe the beautiful holiness of God. We, we don't have the words for it. Piper says it this way. Every effort to define the holiness of God ultimately winds up by saying... God is holy, meaning God is God. He says, let me illustrate. The root meaning of the word holy is probably uh, to cut or separate. A holy thing is cut off and separated from something that is common, that we might call secular. Earthly things and persons are holy as they are distinct from the world and devoted to God. So the Bible says of holy ground, holy assemblies, holy Sabbaths, holy nations, holy garments, holy cities, holy promise, holy men and women, holy scriptures, holy hands, a holy kiss, holy faith, and almost anything can become holy if it's separated from the common and then devoted to God. He's not holy because he keeps the rules. He wrote the rules. God is not holy because he keeps the law. The law is holy because it reveals God. God is absolute. Everything else is just a derivative. It just comes out or is formed from him. Meaning, everything he does is good and holy. Not because someone says it is, but, because, but precisely because God does it. Which means, when we try to talk about his holiness, all we can come back to saying is, he's holy because he's God. And no one else is holy like God. So he's completely incomparable and nothing and no one is like him in his holiness. And because he's God, his holiness is what he is as God. God is holy. That's who God is. No one will ever be like that. So when the angels scream, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, they're actually describing not just um, the things that God does, they're describing the essence of who he is and all that he can do is holy. So not just describing what he does. It's the essence of his being. He is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. So number seven, God is glorious. God is glorious. In verse 4 we see, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. But before you get to that, before he starts speaking, you see that he's holy, 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 and the whole earth 
is full of his glory. Piper explains this. He says, the glory of God, when you talk about his glory, is the manifestation of his holiness. So the glory of God is whenever his holiness is actually made manifest to us. Number six is holiness. And so for us to understand the glory of God, it's it's whenever his holiness is actually manifested to us. God's holiness is the incomparable perfection of his divine nature. His glory is the display of his holiness. So when we see his glory, it's because we're seeing his holiness. God is glorious means God's holiness has gone public. His glory is the open revelation of the secret of his holiness. So we see God's holiness by gazing at his glory. We gaze upon the throne room of God. We do everything we can, every day that we can, as we go through life, to transfix our hearts and minds on the beauty of Jesus in his scriptures so that we can take our minds to the throne room. Holy Spirit, blow out the competing glories of the TV and and whatever else is competing for my um, affections right now to really focus on the goodness of God, the glory of God right now, Blow all those things away because they're not ultimately beautiful. I think they're temporarily beautiful in this moment because I just need for you to throw them away so that I can see that God is more beautiful than anything. And as I gaze upon his holiness, then I find myself more in awe of him. That's what we need to do every day so that when we gaze upon his glory, we find ourselves transfixed by it. Then we start, as 1 Corinthians 10, 31 saying, doing everything for the glory of God. We obey 1 Corinthians 10.31 by becoming Isaiah and walking into the throne room every day. We want to do everything to the glory of God, eat and drink to the glory of God, do community mission care to the glory of God, work your jobs to the glory of God, parent to the glory of God, love your spouse to the glory of God, do your job well to the glory of God. All these things, do mission, tell your neighbor about Jesus to the glory of God. We do that primarily by being so enamored by the glory of God that we can't help but want to do it. And we do that by, as much as we can, trying to see what Isaiah sees every day. We think and we feel and we act always to show that God is glorious. So, the only way that we're ever going to fulfill the mission of the church then is if we are living out if we're doing everything we can to see the glory of God. Our own glory, it will never satisfy. Seeking your own glory will never satisfy you. It will temporarily make you feel good. It temporarily makes me feel like, oh man, that was awesome. But ultimately it was just for me. Only the glory of God is what eternally satisfies us. Because I'm finite and he's infinite. And only the infinite can satisfy the finite. Finite always lets down finite. And so you will always let yourself down. God never runs out of resources to make you happy. Just when you think he's run out, he's like, oh no, look at this. Behind door three, like here's a whole nother load of happiness coming at you. And as soon as that's over, I got another door. And like he's got infinite doors. They never runs out. His mercies are new every morning. Even in heaven, you never run out of finding your happiness in Jesus. It never stops because the infinite is actually able to offer the finite that forever. That's amazing. You'll never get bored in heaven, ever. Because you always have new mercies and new glories 
to see and understand about God. Because he actually has that to offer us since he's God. So let's gaze at God and his glory every day and do what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says. Do everything to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, to talk about such a lofty subject, it's, it's so easy to just be so difficult to wrap our minds and hearts around that we, we're just not sure even what to do next. I feel that way. Like, what, what do I do next when we want an application? And I pray that we would just, uh, by the power of your spirit, find ourselves deeply satisfied with knowing you seeing and reflecting your glory and wanting to live lives that glorify you, that show the world that knowing you, thinking about you, feeling right feelings about you and doing right actions for you, show the world that God is glorious. I pray that you would help us every day seek to do everything that we do for the glory of God and that you would take our hearts and minds to the throne room as Isaiah did so that we can see the goodness of God and not have competing lesser glories in our hearts, but instead only have a heart devoted toward the greatest glory, you. Give us grace when we fail, because we will but never let us lose motivation. Just because we receive grace, let us never, ever lose motivation to keep striving for our entire lives to give you glory. Every thought, every feeling, every action. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're gonna go now into the time of the Lord's Supper where we remember the goodness of God, sending his son, to die on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins, be given the righteousness of Christ, and ultimately one day be in heaven with him to just be totally encompassed by the glory of God forever. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, reminding us that it would be so good to give us his son. So if you're a believer in Christ, this time is for you to come forward, get the bread, get the cup, come back to your seat. We'll take it together. If you're not a believer in Christ, trust in Jesus right now. Right now. Become a believer in Jesus. I would just point out that there's wine and juice. Make sure you pick the one that you want. Uh, If you're not a believer, just observe. Trust in Jesus and observe as we take the Lord's Supper together. And uh, you have this song to think and pray. And whenever you're ready, you can come forward and get the elements and come back and I'll lead us together.